0: This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 10, Hardware, with Brian Fife, Tom Westberg, and Jim Fingal. So, Episode 10, guys.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. This is the milestone for us.
2: Double digits. <laughs> so, I'm Brian. This is Jim. And this is Tom.
0: Today, we're going to talk about, um, do we have a title? Technology and shit? (laughs) I guess that'll do in a pinch. Tom and I, and maybe Jim, I don't know if you were part of those conversations, we were talking about consoles and history or something, one of our many rambling conversations. One of the things that, Tom, you and I were talking about was straightforward generational improvements in consoles and so on, like getting better graphics card, haven't really changed the way that games are made.
2: Yes. There are specific points that you can see sort of inflection points in 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 both arcade and then computer and console games. You start with uh the first arcade games Pong and Computer Space and then probably the the first major change was when they put a microprocessor in the thing. Although that these days seems obvious, it took a little while for uh for Midway to do it uh in Gunfight Amazingly, the, uh, the home games with Atari 2600 and Fairchild's Channel F were the first systems to do color. Uh, arcades didn't come, uh, till a couple of years later in, in 1979. Our arcades
0: had one color. It could be a nice amber or a green or a white, right?
2: Well, they would actually cheat with some mylar over a black and white tube for things like breakout. So the different layers of bricks were different colors. Uh, but it, it was expensive and they were cheap. And, but, but people at home had color TVs. So, uh, that, that wasn't, uh, uh, necessarily an expensive thing to, to add. And then as I started looking through it, I, I realized that the first NES, uh, 1983, its breakthrough was in sound, not in graphics. That, uh, up to that time, consoles had sound chips. That could not hit musical notes properly. And we take it for granted today, but if you think about how much Nintendo uses and always has used music, you can think of 8-bit music as, as really dubious. But before that, in the Atari 2600 and uh, I think the Intellivision and, and before that, sound chips just had a uh, simple divide by two ratios from a, a basic clock and couldn't hit every note uh they could hit different tones but if you tried to play different musical notes some would be off key
0: okay because yeah there'd be enough wobble in the the range that they were trying to hit or something like that
2: right and i remember the, the nintendo people actually were a- aware that this was was something significant that they had done and as i was looking it up at least assuming wikipedia is is uh, accurate they uh had quite a bit of hardware dedicated to sound, even being able to play uh, arbitrary waveforms. Although they didn't have enough ROM to do much with it, but they really could do uh, pretty sophisticated things way back in 1983. It should be
0: obvious to any fan of this podcast that you know those. Songs, the Mario theme, the Zelda theme are seared into the memory of a generation of, of gamers.
1: Yeah. As, as dubious as it is, there, there are many of those songs that if, if played in any context, you'll suddenly be, be brought back to uh, you know, playing that game when you were somewhere between eight and, and 20, depending on which of us you're talking about.
2: Yep. I worked in a group that uh, worked on a Competitor to uh, come out around the time of NES from Atari, the 7800, and we cheaped out on sound. We initially had a very sophisticated sound chip and then realized we just couldn't afford it. And so we pushed it aside and decided this would be good enough. And our only uh nod to that was the ability to add a sound chip to a cartridge. And actually, one 7800 uh, cartridge did use that. Uh, Ballblazer had the... Coin operated, uh, games, graphics, or rather sound chip installed in it to be able to play decent music. Back when
0: I was in middle school, right? I, I saved up money also to buy my first sound card for a PC. Uh, did you play like the old Sierra Adventure games, Tom?
2: Uh, yes. I did the going into a haunted house, that sort of thing. Yes.
0: I sprung for a Pro Audio Spectrum 16. And it was really pretty remarkable, the change from, you know, bleeps to actual, I guess it was MIDI, MIDI sound or something like that, that they were, they were playing in that context, right?
2: I don't remember. Uh, now we're in, in PC land.
0: We just, we've just done a, a nonlinear jump and I apologize for it. Oh I mean, well, no, that, I actually up.
2: consider that part of the evolution. I, I, there are basically three strands to video games, arcade, home consoles, and uh, PC games. Although, well, maybe, maybe four as of, as of today, but, uh, <laughs> mobile, you, yeah. you could say arcade is pretty much gone today. And the third strand today is probably mobile, but there's no question what happened in PCs was very influential. Although in the eighties, they weren't, they were more computer games. They didn't tend to be Twitch games. There ha- There were some. Way back to, was it Bill Budge's pinball construction set on the Apple II uh, was a, a pinball simulator that he just went completely to town and you could actually build your own pinball table and so forth. All of this on an Apple II. In the uh 80s, certainly early 80s, I don't think PCs were uh, anywhere near as uh, influential for gaming. Arcade in that era were... Sort of the motion picture uh, industry of gaming and consoles were the home VCR or, or maybe television networks.
0: D- direct to, direct to video. Yeah. Well, th- there was a fundamental difference in the sort of games that, that were built, right? You had adventure games and you had RPGs and you had things like that were a little too vast in scope to work well on a, on a console. And then every, everything that was twitchy sort of lived, lived with dedicated hardware, right?
1: Yeah, or, or just took to – like an adventure game, like a Sierra game, seem, is just like not really suited for an arcade as well. So it, that's – I mean, we've talked a lot about the way that the, the, the different uh, hardware platforms influence like what types of games are made.
2: Yes, arcade games tended to be Twitch because they also wanted to eat your quarters. And PC and console games, except to the extent that they were ports of arcade games – the designers realized they did not need to eat your quarter. They wanted to keep you interested for quite some time.
1: If we're talking in, in this podcast less about the the social context of playing the game.
2: Yeah, I, we, yeah, we easily slip off and, and uh, you're good to push me back. As I continue to look through, apparently the first credited for uh, first 3D polygon graphics in games. Uh, we're around 1988 with uh atari's hard driving and Namco had a a system that could do it uh called system twenty one and uh th- there had been three d games before it, both uh vector games like Battlezone and some very cheesy three d games like iRobot. this was eighty eight was was when they started to really try to do three d graphics that, I would have to say, is, is a real technological inflection point in games. Probably uh, one of the biggest. Because up to that time, everything was scrolling play fields at best. And now you could start moving around in mazes and, you know, Doom was gonna be coming.
0: And Doom was the first to have actual hardware acceleration, is that right?
2: I believe Doom uh, if if I recall was was uh, considered to be the killer app for the 3DFX card. Carmack uh ported to uh a light version of OpenGL and never turned back.
1: And strangely in the computers that I had at the time, Wolfenstein and Doom played fine, but I had to we had to go to Egghead software uh to get a math coprocessor for our our PC in order to play Ultimate Eight because that was something about that like froze at, at like a really climactic time in 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 the game where you know you you play four hours in and all of a sudden the computer can't handle the the amount of math it's being asked to do.
2: All the bad old days. Yes, you do tend to block that out. I had completely forgotten about that little little
0: wrinkle. Yeah, I mean the the other thing I wanted to just underscore for. For all the youngsters in the audience, is that Doom for all the the revolutionary continent had didn't actually have a Z axis; right. uh, it was it was implied.
1: <laughs> well, it really surprised me when I went back and played GoldenEye, uh, which I I played hundreds of hours of growing up after having played. Two hundreds of hours of, of Halo going back and realizing that you couldn't jump was was bizarre to me. You couldn't jump and there was no reticule.
2: So 3D came to home gaming, arguably with uh, the PlayStation 1 in 1991. And, and when I started looking at the number of things they got right in PlayStation 1, uh, you, you really have to respect Sony uh, all over again. They they had a, a large amount of mass storage with a CD-ROM, way ahead of anybody else. Nintendo uh, ignored it for for quite some time. Sega had just had it as add-ons. They had a geometry engine to be able to render 3D. They had a, a texture mapping engine uh, in their GPU that, that could do flatter Garo shading and text, and primitive texture mapping, primitive video decompression. This was, they, they put a 32-bit CPU in when, when Nintendo was, with the Super NES was getting around to a 16-bit version of the 6502. And, um, Sega, of course, had a 16-bit, really, uh, 68,000 in the, in the Genesis. Uh, and I think they may have been first with a GameSafe cartridge. I'm not, I'm not certain if that was. They, there. they
0: had to do it right because they were optical only and there wasn't a way to write.
2: Right yeah Nintendo had it in their cartridges yes Um and I think
0: when when we were talking Tom about like what was sort of these little incremental revolutionary things the ability to save a game state was one of the things that that we talked about as being a pretty big deal in terms of uh making things possible in the design of games that was we, you weren't able to do before
1: Well and, and the PlayStation with the the memory card having a sort of arbitrary amount of uh of saves that is is not limited i mean i remember having dozens of saves for uh final fantasy 7 for playstation so that i could i could go back and watch every fmv that was in the game whereas on the nintendo or super nintendo you had much more often you had like three different slots that, that you had do to choose between
0: yeah, well, it was it was built it was actually baked into the cartridge of the game, right, Tom? I mean, that's how they did saves in the old Nintendo carts.
2: And a very small amount of memory on those cartridges. And in in fact, Nintendo really didn't uh, they didn't like the idea that you'd have too many players on one cartridge. They'd rather you buy another or something. I don't think anybody would do it. But <laughs>
0: that was the that was the the the. Uh, patronizing attitude from the <laughs> a,
2: a, a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. When I, when I was
1: playing Nintendo, I never, I never actually understood how, how that worked. Like what, what was the scale of the amount of memory that there was to save on those cartridges? Depend on the cartridge.
2: I'm sure it was, it was, uh, just kilobytes, if not multiple kilobits. Uh, it was it was not a lot. Uh,
0: well it, it was a it was an EPROM, right Tom, and those just didn't have a lot of capacity at the
2: probably time. Probably been an EE EEPROM. Yeah. Uh flash I don't think existed at that time and EPROM was uh, only UV erasable. Mm. Though some may have been battery backed up SRAM. Oh yeah. So it's possible that that uh that they might have done it. That's how Williams did it with uh their arcade uh, machines starting with Defender.
0: Now, then they were saving the high scores, right?
1: So does a battery backup mean that when the battery ran out, you could no longer save?
2: Correct. And they were probably sealed in there, and they didn't mind. Your, your cartridge was dead for... Why, for about,
0: why would anybody want to play the game after a certain period of time? Yeah, good. The idea that a game would not only have variable costs to produce, but variable costs to ship not just because of the maps or the, you know, crap you put in the box, but there's an actual bomb for the game bill of materials, you know, hardware cost. You know, that says something that the designers were liberated from when they moved to press discs.
2: Right. So looking at PlayStation One, and this is another case where home games seemed to be out in front of PCs because they were doing hardware 3D in '91. And the 3D FX didn't come out until 96 for PCs. Now, granted, people were doing software 3D because the processor was decent in a PC, but it wasn't actually better than the 32-bit R3000 that was in the PlayStation 1, uh, for its time. You know, Sony had, had done something really amazing and, and well ahead of, uh, of, PCs for, for several years. And of course, they'd repeat that, um, in 2000 with the PS2. I would argue the PS2 was pretty much an evolution. It was, it was, yes, we were way out in front, uh, uh graphically and er- everything in 91. And nine years later, we're going to repeat that same thing and everybody will, will come to us again. And they were right. Everybody did. Uh, the, the emotion engine did lots of good stuff and the, They were for a couple of years graphically ahead of what you could reasonably get on a PC, which was quite amazing.
0: Well, my impression of the Sony architectures was that while most of the hardware manufacturers, in particular as we start talking about Xbox and these things, followed sort of standard processor architectures, Sony did some pretty mind-warping stuff with the way that they designed – their hardware and one of the kind of results of that was that it was a more challenging uh, platform to build games for but if you had expertise in it you could do pretty crazy things um, and there's sort of a more steady progression in the the sort of timeline of, of Sony games on each console generation where the ones right at the end of the life cycle are, are pretty pretty crazy because the people that are you know have a lot of experience know all the ins and outs and are are really finally lighting up everything on the platform.
2: But I have the, the same general impression. I think I would a- almost uh, describe it as as Sony enabling the very best programmers who might uh work on that platform to truly be able to shine and show themselves out ahead of the folks who were uh, were just churning out uh games. The problem with that was that, starting in uh, around two thousand or so, people started to expect more from middleware, whether it's the Unreal Engine or uh, or, or other sets of software libraries. And uh, I'm not on the the software side of of the technology curve that we're going to talk about, but that was a a real influence in what was going to be going on and everybody expected to be able to port their game to a uh, specific uh library unreal id's uh, id's engine or 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 uh, uh one of those and uh get it on pc as well as multiple consoles once there were multiple viable consoles and so that that made it a a harder sell especially by the time we got to, to the ps3 xbox live was probably the next really significant thing in 2002 suddenly you had home console network connectivity we take it for granted but microsoft did it basically first and i would say probably best
0: i don't think they've ever slipped from that position as king <laughs> ever since they rolled out that platform
2: Right. There's lots to criticize in terms of the restrictive nature of, 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 things matching systems being brain dead or, or whatever. But, uh, they, they were definitely, uh, there in front.
1: Especially in a, in a time where, well, I, I don't want to go into Microsoft's reputation, but it was one of the products that uh, Xbox and Xbox Live it just seemed to work and not crash. <laughs>
2: did a very good job with that. I, I think uh, the Xbox hardware was way too expensive with its Intel processor and and such. They they Well, they uh, didn't
0: even bother to cost reduce that thing, right, when they first released it.
2: It never go through a cost reduction process. They knew, I think immediately the Xbox 360 whatever the next generation would be would be what they they'd go to and they would bring that out ahead of the PS3 uh which they did. And so they were the first ones to high def I don't know whether I would call high def an actual inflection point in game technology or just an evolution. I'm I'm I tend to think of it as an evolution, but you guys might get
0: I, I don't think of it as an innovation, just you know, every generation of graphics card, yes, it's better. Um and ooh, now I can see water effects and new now fire is done, you know, on the hardware natively. But they're prettier, but they don't necessarily add kind of the dimension to gameplay.
1: When I was looking into the middleware stuff like havoc and physics and 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 things like that and trying to get to the bottom of what what these these packages what what they add or, or what they enable. I mean all of the stuff that it shows off are things that are very cool and I recognize like fog effects and awesome destruction effects, uh like sparks and and realistic cloth and and whatnot, but in in a weird sort of way all of those things are what allow you to have a a world that sort of baseline feels realistic in the way you interact with things, but have a hard time figuring out at least for for most games what what new sorts of games that enables i mean it enables enables a new sort of engagement or maybe a new sort of immersion in game but it's it's a weird sort of thing where where that when when you think about what's meaningful in games tend to like put 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 that aside uh in favor of uh interesting mechanics or interesting story or uh or new ways to to interact with the game
2: yeah that will thing. With networking, you could play with your friends in their house and you house in your house. With it just being prettier, it didn't enable an entirely new uh, way to, to play a game.
1: It's the difference between going over to your friend's house to play GoldenEye and being able to play Halo on demand with, with friends. At least that's the biggest effect that networking had on my gaming.
2: Halo was the killer up for that, wasn't it?
1: It's like having a LAN party with multiple Xboxes networked together, almost being being like a PC in, in, in that aspect of being able to have one Xbox upstairs and one Xbox downstairs and have eight people playing together.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah, when, well, you know, the, the things about Halo that made it really cool, you know, the multiplayer was a thing, but, you know, only being able to carry two guns and the, the pacing of the game where you had frenetic action and the pause and... That's you know those are the things that made it singular that made it like Halo not the multiplayer stuff.
2: I you could say that except in for home games there pretty much was no multiplayer before it for, for uh in 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 reasonably large groups because yeah. there was no network connectivity before Xbox Live.
1: Yeah, well for console the for yeah. for PC the yeah. The sort of LAN parties with
2: They'd been weird, for a Doom
1: and Quake and whatnot were a thing.
0: We had a you know the the game shop in uh, California when I was living there at the time had four computers that were networked together, sitting in a corner, and you could go and play Doom there. And it was just like the wildest thing
1: <laughs> for <laughs> Whoa! us.
0: Yeah. We we cross linked the audio so that two guys would talk to each other and the other two guys could talk to each other, and it was just uh, it, it it expanded my consciousness.
1: I I always read about that but uh did not have access to that. It was
0: like it was like the Robotech Center. <laughs> you heard about it, but you never went to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wanted to take a moment. I I think we're at a pause point here and give thanks to one of the sponsors of the show today. We we've gotten back on the sponsorship wagon, Jim, uh with your prodding.
1: Yeah, well I'm I'm glad because uh we need you know, something to pay for the crystal ball that we have, something to to pay for the, the Bushmills 21 year that we sip while sitting by the fire
0: we have we have needs <laughs> <laughs> uh, so th- this this week we're, we're being sponsored by Razer, who who wanted us to talk about some of their custom gaming services and and this this particular product's focused on the retro gaming group well this is focused on the television platform and the Jaguar platforms. And what they've done is work with a team of user interface designers and a team of materials experts and created a whole set of custom inserts for the controllers for all of your favorite classic Intellivision games. Now, Tom, I know that you were a big Intellivision player in the day.
2: Actually, I was a complete Atari partisan. Sorry.
0: You didn't even, you didn't even check out the competition?
2: I really didn't. Uh, the 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 competition from my perspective was actually ColecoVision.
0: Vision. <laughs> now, Jim, do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I play Coleco.
1: You play the Smurf game. You land on the grass, <laughs> you die. You fall in a pit, you die.
0: So the 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 game inserts that slid in over the number pad on the television were generally made of like a brittle Mylar plastic. Didn't have a great feel to the touch and more importantly the design of of the art on those uh on those game cards if you will was really was really focused on selling the game and not sort of meeting the needs of experts they didn't have the right kind of high contrast colors or you know precision uh printing so that you you hit exactly on the target spot uh you need that 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 sub microsecond uh advantage when you're pushing those buttons and uh, it also has a nice tactile grippy surface so that your sweaty Cheeto uh laden fingers uh don't uh, don't slip and lose contact you know they're being offered uh, across a a wide variety of games uh battleship to adventure and uh, it really encourage that you uh that you check those out and, uh, and and see what they have to offer raise your gaming to another layer lord knows uh, your reaction time is faster than the processing power on those consoles
1: Thanks, Fraser.
2: So, Tom, where were you? Uh, we were in the 21st century and had just, uh, hit, uh, Xbox Live and, and then evolved into HD. I guess PS3 added more storage with Blu-ray and in the mid-90s, you did have analog controllers. First, the single analog stick on the oh, Nintendo analog 64 stick was
0: huge. That and was dual, a big deal.
2: dual shock or dual analog and dual shock on, on the P- uh, PlayStation. I don't know if, if uh, anybody thinks Haptic feedback is significant to games. I don't, but you, you well, guys there, made-
1: It's it enabled games that were entirely haptic feedback, <laughs> which which is sort of on on the the more radical okay. edge of of indie games. But yeah, um, there, there there's a game for for mobile that is entirely sound and haptic. There's no visual. No, I can't remember the title now. Uh, but that was but that there, must
0: have been a long time coming, though.
1: Yeah it's It's not something that it enabled it right away that that suddenly like with with haptic feedback there were like brand new like it was used for explosions <laughs> and, right and
2: it was and but, and it again it most most of that it was an, an evolutionary thing I would say analog controllers were an enabling technology
0: yeah and I'd recommend anybody who really is interested in analog controllers the evolution of controllers. John Syracuse and his podcast Hypercritical did like, I think a three episode arc on game controllers where he, he talked about all of them and of course the, uh, the GameCube controller was his favorite, but I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes.
1: What was up with how uncomfortable and
2: big the original Xbox controller was? I
0: liked the man troller. I really enjoyed <laughs> that.
2: Hey, let's yeah, you you just looked at that, and you looked at the PlayStation controller, and you said the Japanese are elegant, and the Americans are are these big brutes. I I
0: I actually drank the Kool Aid on that one. I I was not a, a PS gamer at the time, and and you know just just for clarity, that controller size really hasn't evolved much since it first came out in the PS one. No, it hasn't. And. Uh, I I grabbed a hold of that Xbox controller and I said this is a this is a working American's uh, game controller and and <laughs> felt good about that. Uh, no we, child will be able to play with this. It, we had to get a small one because my my little sis, who's it was actually her console, <laughs> couldn't play with the big one. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, yeah, so you, the, Okay, probably. that is that's possibly a feature, not a bug. Yes.
0: Yeah, but well, no, that would have been good if it were my console. Yes.
2: Yes. <laughs> Obviously, the next control breakthrough was the Wii, and uh, I I don't know whether history is going to look at at Wii as a a flash in the pan that was there and really burned brightly, but is is now gone. It may well be playing bowling and waving your sword around uh, isn't actually a persistent part of of gaming technology, but it was sure significant at its time.
1: The power glove had a little bit of 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 the similar detecting motion but it was just so clumsy
2: yeah and- i mean, i would say the power glove though it it because it didn't take off it was not influential i mean, there's you you can't deny the we almost overshadowed the ps3 and the, the and the 360 and And both Microsoft and Sony were sort of saying, "Who are these guys? If this stupid thing is still GameCube graphics, and they're beating us.
0: It's standard death. Yeah. How can they be selling it?" Well, it, it, they're it, selling
2: they're... it at a profit. Unheard of.:
0: The brilliance of what Nintendo did with the Wii was they really positioned their console to be the other one that a Nintendo or a, a Microsoft uh, devotee would buy. Uh, the price point was low enough that you would get a PS3 or you would get an Xbox 360, and then you would buy
2: uh, the Wii. Maybe I'm buying into hype because I I don't know this from personal experience, but I actually believe people who didn't play games were willing to try playing Wii. In fact, I I, I recall getting my sister to play bowling on the Wii,
0: there's nothing controversial about that. It is, and, it is, yeah, it and is and true. It's
2: similar, yeah. like the people
1: who didn't play games played the Wii and then played Guitar Hero.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now they didn't continue, it didn't continue, uh, but, but, um, it certainly brought in folks who uh, were not part of the, the normal game crowd and, well, uh, it, it provided a
1: platform, it. like a, a new platform for, the the very young generation of of gamers and and casual gamers that would have been fine playing an NES but like didn't really have a console that was like really focused on making games that uh were suitable towards their attention span and uh and interest level
0: when you're also speaking to the fact Jim right that when the launch title for a console is Halo 8 or when the launch title for a console is Madden 15 or something like that there's all this sort of assumed background with the game that most of the players have. So as a, as a newcomer to the platform, you have no idea what the hell's going on.
1: Yeah. Whereas Wii Sports is like, is, is pretty much, uh, as, as basic as you can get. Yep.
2: And now was- Connect is, is sort of the next generation, uh, Wii are uh, in terms of just here's a new way to do your, your control input. It is my uh impression that Connect is even more of a flash in a pan. It had a one year lifespan. It did well for the for Microsoft for a uh, Christmas, but I suspect that has pretty much passed. But you you two may have a different impressions well, there.
0: Putting my professional hat on, I think that Connect is much more about Microsoft making a play as an entertainment device. Than Microsoft wanting to be the be all and end all for gaming.
1: So, what do you mean by that? I mean, as as, as the Connect uh, being something that will plug into more than just game
0: Well, controlling media playback, giving you discovery of video, uh, letting you interact with your home theater, and and locking the Xbox as a component that you want to have in your in your home theater. You know, Microsoft has been sitting on that Connect technology for a while and you know sort of looking for a a place to deploy it and it was the perfect test bed for them to launch it in and you know really refine the technology through the experiences with the xbox
1: yeah i'm really i'm very interested in in the connect but i just don't know of any connect games that interest me that i think i would have fun playing well yeah are there any
0: (laughs) the the you know the mass effect uh I was talking to a friend of mine, Caitlin, who was talking about playing that with a group and they were sort of whispering the replies to each other when they were talking about which one they were going to choose because the game would listen. And whatever one you said, it would just go with it. There was that... Um, Tom, do you remember the name of that that that, that preposterous uh, mech game that has a dedicated controller? Mecha Steel Battalion Heavy Armor. Uh, so there's this game called Steel Battalion that has this, like, I believe it's just, oh, it looks like it got killed on reviews, but, uh, wow, it got re- really got killed in reviews, but they, they had this
1: 38 out of a hundred. They had this giant
0: <laughs> keyboard, uh, like, like with all these buttons and dedicated switches and stuff, um, for, for, you know, driving, a, a mech, a, a giant war robot, um, with the game and hardware. And the idea with the connect was to replace that with, you know, the ability to pull up menus mm. and sub menus and do all this stuff through gesture. And I think, you know, that's the promise. I mean, even just, let's talk about putting extremely robust voice recognition into a game. And you do that, and suddenly you can, you know, execute complex commands like prepare a super bomb instead of having to, like, open up a nested menu. That'd be cool.
1: Yeah, I didn't even realize until this conversation that Connect had an audio detection oh inspection. it
0: totally does and it's a key part of the technology in fact you know my, li- my little one thinks she can talk to any program on the tv now she goes xbox pause when she wants it to stop and xbox play when she wants it to play again
1: well she can talk to every program it works because i hit will play on the, will the program
0: <laughs> it works better when daddy's in the room. <laughs> yeah yeah it, it totally does um but yeah it has the voice it has the the faces you know and th- that's kind of
1: what it does I, I feel like, again, it's like I really want to get one, but I I want at least two games that I, I can play that are interesting. Are I there, can't name uh,
2: them. I, I tried Gun Stringer uh, and something else, and it didn't keep me in.
1: I mean, like the Wii was very good for, like, party games in the sense that, like, Wii Tennis, it was the killer app was – you playing with with your friends and and having like a like a hot seat ladder, like I imagine when I go to PAX, the the games with Kinects that uh, are always demos are like the the Dance Central or the whatever the Ubisoft equivalent of of those games where yeah,
0: the the dancing one's pretty off the hook. I mean, it's 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 kind of great.
1: Yeah, it's cool that you like the the visual representation of your stuff on on the screen. It, is very interesting, but um, I also don't see myself playing it uh, as as someone who whose primary use case for games is is playing uh, an immersive game for for twenty hours and then beating it.
0: Well, yeah, and it's it's kind of like you know a lot of these fancy things where when it fails, it completely breaks you out of the gameplay experience, and it does. Well, and
1: that's the was the uh, critique for Steel Battalion was it was unplayable. F- because of the connect controls, right?
0: You you can't count on it when things get frenetic. So forget about it. What what good is it? Yeah.
1: connectables was the the one thing that I actually really wanted to get. Uh And
0: what, next next time you're over, I'll show it to you. I got you, it on you got the, it. The thing. I got a demo. At least. I have a demo. I mean, it's, it's oh. good enough to, to to see what's going on. I, I couldn't get my kid interested in it on the the iPad or on the Xbox. So to hell with it.
1: Yeah, you can't force that. <laughs> No, why, why would I? Do I
0: really want to, do I really want to force that on my life?
2: <laughs> so my last, uh, uh, technology point, I, I, I realized as I was uh, looking at this that I, I neglected Game Boy and, and the various mobile platforms. But since it, it, it would be, uh, how gaming is changing, uh, with smartphones. And that's not only because of you having the game with you because you've got your phone with you it's also the input device is completely different using capacitive touch screens and and this is not really hardware uh they're revolutionary revolutionizing game price points and uh distribution uh, as as much as apple is uh condemned for curating the apple store they're nowhere near as intrusive as Microsoft, Nintendo and Sony have always been um so so they essentially allowed an indie game scene to thrive in the uh, uh Android and iOS communities that were really kept out of consoles
0: while in the world of you know network connected computers we've had the ability to get access to software until Steam really emerged, and and Steam was just beginning to get involved in the indie scene. There wasn't sort of a trusted source you could go to uh, to pick up these games. Right? I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, too?
1: I mean, it's it's still like Steam. Like for me, it's as someone who um, who's gotten back into playing uh, games on the computer, it seems like so far as is like the only source I go to to buy games online. I know I know there are other sources, but both. Because it's a trusted source and just the, the ease of uh, finding and playing things, it's like pretty much that or uh, free games uh, that um, are, are either throwaway games or are like super indie developers that uh, all they do is host them on their website. Like Those are the two sources <laughs> that I get for, uh, for PC games.
2: I think game distribution actually is probably a whole topic for us.
0: It it could be, and we should probably save that. Um, you know, I I wanted to get to uh, some of the things, Jim, that you were thinking about. Yeah, we we sort of had another angle that we wanted to look at, which was, uh, well, I mean, do you want to you want to set some context, Jim?
1: Uh, I mean, just interest me the as someone who plays a lot of three D console games. The frequency in which I would see these middleware packages come up, like Havoc or Bink or 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 Physics and and whatnot, and the amount that things like that or different uh, game engines just be- became a standard part of of which basically all games that had 3D in them made use of. And thinking about these these packages and the impact that that it has on the sorts of games that not not so much the sorts of games that are possible to be made but the sorts of games that get made and who makes them
0: I was thinking about this the other day when I was playing Biohex Human Revolution you know you can drag stunned or dead people right around yeah and there's this really sophisticated ragdoll physics that govern the way they flop around when you pull them and it doesn't really enhance the game at all <laughs> in fact it's sometimes a distraction uh but they put it in because they licensed that from somebody right
1: yeah well and, and i i feel like when i was thinking about this i was prepared to 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 come out saying that these it's all sort of like gloss and, and meaningless but but like mirror's edge uses uses the physics engine and and i would say that some of the outdoor effects that uh it has that are sort of throwaway effects of of just things flying in the wind actually add quite a bit to the, the mood of of the game like that and the, the sorts of cloth physics that you interact with it it becomes a different world that you're interacting with that that enhances enhances the pleasure of of moving around in it.
2: Well and that if you think back to Dark Ages in which when Half Life 2 came out, it had a, a physics engine and they actually had uh, gameplay puzzles that were based on the physics interactions of you know balancing something on a beam or or whatever to to make that yeah, work Yeah, the
1: gravity gun. Yeah. Yeah, I think I the uh, I've I was actually surprised when I I went to look at or like the list of companies that use the Havoc engine and it was just like a who's who of 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 games and it's from like chronologically, Half Life Two used it. Fear, Oblivion, Dead Rising, Bioshock, uh, Assassin's Creed, Fallout Three, the Killzone games, the Red Faction games, Heavy Rain, the games that you like. It's weird for me to think of the, the games that strike you as advancing the the art form in 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 terms of immersion. Like it. It makes me wonder how much the, like, advancing of the video game technology is the advancement of, like, three packages of software rather than a, like, a full community of, of people developing interesting core technologies.
0: Well, I think there's a big difference though, right? I mean, I, I guess as you're talking, I'm thinking of a parallel in, like, photography or something, where somebody comes up with a new feature on a camera, and every idiot that picks up the camera, like, uses it. And that's not a good thing, and that's not art. But there are people that can use those technology components to, you know, even pervert them to do wonderful things. Um, it's, it's when you sort of forget that they're there, that they're really used to the, their best effect, right? Well,
2: it also, the, the technology packages, the middleware, the physics engines and so forth, particularly as, as they get even more Sophisticated and easy to use for programmers and, and then back from programmers for game designers to use because it is important to, in many cases, separate those roles that games uh, in, in, in large teams, but sometimes even in small will have obviously artists and sound people and they'll have people who are essentially trying to come up with the fun and so forth and many times certainly in the old days that person was almost always a coder but nowadays not at all uh required and it's because of these middleware packages where that that person may well be just trying things out by playing with with teeny little scripts that are are straightforward to do or are tweaking parameters the the middleware enables that sort of experimentation by a creative class of people who might not – their minds might not work right to also be a a programmer.
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting. Anna Anthropy, who is sort of like a radical indie game designer, has a book, The Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, where the sort of thrust of of the the game is is, it's beyond indie games when the creation of video games becomes democratized similar to how zines – where it could be seen as like a democratization of, of, you know, magazine publishing. That's where very interesting games that could not possibly have been made otherwise due to technological limitations become viable. You know, things as simple as, as like, Game Maker.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention Game Maker. It's sort of, like, become the de facto framework for people that have ideas that just want to get them out there, right?
1: Yeah, and there, there's like a continuum of these like free tools, t- tools that that are, are readily accessible. Not like you know the Unreal Engine, one one can approach with without being a programmer and still being able to express themselves. Maybe not express themselves in a AAA sort of way, or or make something that is ultimately going to be a finished product or sold in an App Store, but create create a game um, and also be able to with what's probably more important is, is be able to just prototype with quickly without having to spend a month writing a physics engine.
0: Yeah. Well, Ed, today um, game maker, there's a free version. You can actually deploy to iOS for like 300 bucks.
1: That That's another thing that these middleware packages and game engines like unity has the promise of like uh, make the game and, and, and release it to like five different places where, there was a time in which that just didn't really happen. Like there were Nintendo games and there were PlayStation games.
0: Well, what, what Unity really allows you to do is make a real 3D game. All, all you really need is knowledge of like how to design 3D models. You don't actually have to know anything about how to code Although, uh, 3D stuff. Let's be
2: clear. That part is not trivial. Oh, right. no, it's hard. But, but the, you, know, you, can ha- you
0: can be an artist and you can make a game.
2: There was a, a really interesting article today or yesterday. Some people at, at uh, MIT Game Lab uh, came up with a plug-in for Unity called Open Relativity. Uh, and yeah, great. Uh, Oh, yeah, I heard They, about they allow this. you to slow down the speed of light to, say, walking speed and see what things will look like visually if you, you do that to your world. And, uh, there's a, an interesting video on it. Uh, and, and it's, it's that sort of, of thing that packages like the Unity game engine enable people to just try completely bizarre things. Of course, it also requires, uh, bizarre nerds like the folks at MIT at Game Lab as well. Uh, bless them.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the other thing that guys like Unity is, I mean, you know, Avid's doing this. Unity's doing this. I don't know if Final Cut's doing this is you know there's a whole bunch of pre-made models and pre it's almost like stock art for games that you could just buy from other people and deploy so you don't have to make a character or a chair or a table you can just get one
2: yeah the the asset creation thing although the, the, if you want to buy a you know an alien model somebody's probably got it up there And yeah, I I don't actually know what the economics are of that, but you can buy, you know, texture sets or sound sets or humanoids or, uh, machines and so forth and just populate your game with them. Need some furniture? Great. Go to, go to the store.
1: So this is in like the Unity store? Yes. A friend I know who went to architecture school and was an architect and was also interested in video game and one of the things that he did was just was asset creation—a sort of way to bridge th- those those two things together.
2: It's uh, yeah, a lot of money is is spent by by AAA developers uh, doing that.
0: Yeah. Um, anything else you wanted to dig into, Jim, on the the third party stuff?
2: Just the idea of of like what
1: what games get made, in. for me, it really does tear at the two poles. Where on on the one hand, you get these like. Crappy games like the new Area 51, quote unquote new, or the the Wolfenstein remake, which are basically just like, oh, we like we can do this in like new graphics and use all these middleware packages, and the game won't at all be interesting. Uh, but on the other hand, the game that I just recently played struck me as as like an indie game that uh, actually used these packages was the un- unfinished Swan. Uh, which is a, a PlayStation Network game that is, you know, v- extremely interesting visually. You start out the game, and the the whole world is made up of white objects, and the only way that you can see in 3D is you throw these like ink blots onto them, and that starts to define the the 3D world. I imagine that that sort of thing could not really have been done wi- without uh, these middleware packages, and it. Being able to play with these things is sort of something that, that Tom alluded to earlier. Being able to to play with these things and ha- have a creative mind go in and and subvert the the ways that people usually use them, I think, is a, a hotbed for new, interesting games.
0: I get this vision of people like you know in the chemistry lab, accidentally mixing two beakers and getting a unexpected result. You know that that kind of stuff happening. With these engines to generate some of these well, well, it's
2: tests. also you're, you're you're getting people who aren't chemistry majors being able to play with the chemistry lab, that with, with a, a completely different uh, view of, of creativity in the world, which is not to say chemists aren't creative, creative, but that they probably they, talk they to like other chemists. chemists most of the time, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, think about don't even think about. The, uh, the walls that they've set up around themselves. And I think programmers are the same way. It, whereas, uh, people outside, uh, that community, I, I may be simply idealizing it, but I, I do believe that it's, it's a, a big enabling thing.
0: Well, man, let's, let's be very pragmatic about this. The more, the more monkeys we have banging on typewriters, <laughs> the more likely it is we're going to get, uh, great. And, yeah. Or uh, and and uh, the more
1: democratized and the, the less echo chambery. The it is the the more you will not just get the same
2: game over and over again.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's
2: so. Uh, on that note of hope, so I know yeah. it's, it's a uh, uh, Jim. I know it's a just a, a remake, but I really wanted to play Okami HD on my PS3. I can't get Sony to let me uh give them money for it so i'm i'm gonna give up but i I considered that one of the most beautiful games on the p s two and and uh that is something I wanted to see is in it
1: Ida. one is it have like the early release for like you have to have a subscription to 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 pay for it
2: yeah you have you see you have to be on p s n and you have to have your credit card in the network and I can't get them to accept my credit
1: yeah card. i think that the um <laughs> so- this happened with the Unfinished Swan for for me, where the release day was the PSN release day, and then a week later you could uh, you could get the game. I definitely, yeah, I've I would certainly entertain getting Okami because I love that one. I mean that that was the <sighs> yes
2: that was interesting gameplay and graphically I had never seen anything like it. So so Jim, what have you been playing?
1: Well, it's, I played Unfinished Swan. Then that was uh fantastic was uh pretty pretty short but uh very enjoyable and you know some of the 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 middle level mechanics weren't as awesome as as the just how striking a effect the the first level was but there were some uh super cool things in there so've pretty much been been playing that and I've actually been playing in sort of spare time the uh, Ed McMillan's, uh, basement collection, uh, that he put out for Steam, which has a bunch of his earlier games where you're, the, the game I'm on right now, you're a very cute cloud that eats things and then, and then vomits and then that vomit, uh, helps you, is like a mechanic that lets you jump further or you vomit a cloud that you could then swim through.
2: Is this clearly a vomit, or are you 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 translating the action? Into the game that? is
1: called Spewer.
2: No,
0: this is the guy that makes. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's
2: yeah, really this really is right. a, the
1: the guy who uh, the <laughs> artist for I think one of the programmers for Super Meat Boy, uh, Binding of Isaac, and this this has like it's like the package of, of basically most or all of the games that he did before before Meat Boy.
2: So you haven't you haven't gotten into Halo Four yet to, to give us a decent. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm. I'm I generally, uh, around October, I I stop buying console games because I can never think of anything to ask for for Christmas and, uh, and a bunch of console games is, uh, it usually does the trick.
2: Uh, you are, are wise and have great self-control.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I think the next game that I'm gonna play when I get some free time is actually a very old game. Um, I think I am going to play Catherine. It was uh, a console game on sale, uh, <laughs> I, uh, because of the, the backlog I have and though I don't have less money, the $60 price point has become less attractive as, as like the number of games that I played once and will never play a game again have piled up on my shelf.
0: Well, I think also just once you get a lot more diversity of choice, it really is almost like a vote to buy a, a console a console title at, at full price.
2: Well, and also there are such good, interesting games for two dollars or five dollars uh, on uh, a phone or an iPad.
0: Each each new game I buy gets me closer to the game I buy that's going to trigger the purchase <laughs> of a new computer.
1: Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the downside
0: which is why I like playing ones that are three or four years old. Uh, Tom, what are you been
2: playing? I've been uh, – well, I I made one last gasp attempt to play uh, World of Warcraft, Mists of Pandaria, and uh, I, I had gotten my uh, Pandaren monk up to like 14, 15 and decided uh, I'm not that interested in that and then decided to try to play some of my old characters – at varying levels and so forth. They, they changed and stripped down things so much. And I found myself logging in, staring at it, looking through a few uh, pages of help and logging out depressed. The, the, the game has, has, right. It left me is the way I feel. Uh, and, and I, I truly wanted to just play some comfort. Wow. And, Uh, don't, don't feel I can do it. So that's, that's gone. And, and, uh, and, and then of course the evil people at World of Tanks had a, a 5X experience point, uh, weekend where you got to have premium for free for three days. And so I got sucked back in. They pulled,
0: yeah, they, they addressed my biggest complaint and got rid of compulsory gold ammo. You can now buy gold ammo for a
2: lot of silver. It's, it doesn't matter. Now it's now it's a perfect. It is a very interesting thing that you, they could argue that you can uh buy the premium ammo just using experience points or rather the 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 credits. But in reality you're going to pay money. Uh, that's that's it's so much uh credits to do that that it is not I think feasible even for a very good. But you know you realize
0: an hour and twenty minutes in, and you you yeah, fucking we, mentioned.
1: we we almost
2: made it.
0: We almost made. A, we almost had a perfect <laughs> episode.
2: I'm sorry, I mean, at least I have mentioned it to diss it, but we mentioned it to diss it every week. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. That's all we do is bitch about World of Warcraft. You're you're, you're flustered by the PlayStation Network. You're flustered by Game Center. uh Your I may Xbox be getting is getting old, you year. know. I don't know. Yeah, these stay off my lawn. Seriously, play Letterpress. What, what's the problem? Is that still an issue? <laughs> Game Center. <laughs> Just fix did, it. Just call I yourself something.
2: did get in. No, actually, I finally got uh, Game Center to accept an ID, uh, but uh, then it was so overwhelmed that I couldn't log in, and I got impatient with that.
0: Okay, I'll I'll send you the invite again. So I bought XCOM. I, I pre-ordered oh, yeah, XCOM. You're
2: talking about XCOM. Oh, yes. You've talk, been talking about very little else.
0: It is it is uh, wonderful. Uh, wonderfully streamlined, super hard. And uh, I actually took Tobald's advice and am uh, cheating in the game. Uh, I've given myself basically unlimited money so that the, the resource management component of the game doesn't overwhelm me so I can actually play at the harder difficulties and enjoy the challenging tactical game without having to worry about build order and bullshit like that.
1: So are you what are you playing on on the computer?
0: Yeah, I'm playing on the PC. Paul and I also started a new game of Dawn of War RPG. So all the games that I picked as my as my favorites, I'm going going back to. And uh we've actually started playing the 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 game sort of requires you to take two squads each into battle, and we've been trying to play with one squad each. And uh, that's been interesting. And then finally uh, Super Hexagon. Have you guys both played that? i certainly have uh, yes. grab your touch uh Jim and buy it now because it is it so this is, is, is
1: this is the, the is problem of of having uh of having an iPod touch but not an iphone is that I have to purposefully look for games and not hear about them and then immediately buy them
0: yeah but i'm i'm, I'm telling you though i i got it last night I, I, can, I have now made it to uh Twenty-four seconds. How long? What do you? Still, I haven't played 12 for a while. It's
2: been eleven, but it's it is a uh, an interesting uh, demonstration in a compulsive addictive behavior playing that game.
0: I thought it was a. I thought it was a a, a great tool for developing <laughs> mental plasticity.
2: I- I always look on the bright side of life. Yeah. Is it worth $3? Come on. Well, I you know the the thing I love. <laughs> yes, it is. Let's just buy it. Come on, help out the team. Yeah, 20 of those it, would get you a game.
0: It's it's one of those things where like just when you think and I'm talking about in the in the scale of every 5 seconds. Like you know, every 5 seconds in the game, like you get to 10 seconds and you get to 15 seconds and you think you know how the game works and then they change something else and I just will be playing and just will break out laughing, and I'll go. What happened? I said, "Oh, I made it to you know, twenty <laughs> seconds," and they just screwed me again. <laughs> I think it might be like Super Meat Boy in that.
1: Yeah, way. I uh, I will get Letterpress and uh, and Super Hexagon.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll introduce you to my sister, who is vicious in uh, Letterpress, because I, I have a feeling you're good, and I am uh, just embarrassing.
2: So a rec- an iOS game recommendation in terms of just. Very simple in many ways, but, but, uh, fun in terms of having it change the rules out from under you, uh, uh that, uh, I, I've really enjoyed is the moron test. Have you played that? I think it's a 99 cent game. And it is a, a, a game that you can give to an eight-year-old and he or she would have fun with it. And you can too, uh, as you, you realize that it is essentially Taught you the way you 're playing and then done something new to you uh, in a, in a slightly perverse way that uh, you described laughing because it it had fooled you and you you thought you you built in some uh, muscle memory for the right way to do it, but that 's the wrong way for this, but it did give you hints that that uh, that the rules were going to be changing and so it's i know i wouldn 't say it 's always fair, but you can always find your way through. You
0: could have seen it coming, but right. you didn't. Yeah. Uh, you guys both played WarioWare on the DS or the, I, I, the Game I, yeah, Boy. I didn't.
1: Right? I had the Super Wario World. That was the only, uh, Wario, uh, game I played for the old school Game Boy. I, th-
0: I think you turned, you turned me on to WarioWare, Tom, back in the day, and that, that's a delightful
2: It is. Well. I would actually say it's similar to, in, in that respect to, uh, uh, is more WarioWare is than... just the one that is all mini games. Well,
0: it, 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 it sh-
2: Micro
0: games. It's all well micro games, yeah. they 'cause they're often like two
2: seconds. Right, and with with um, it being Wario, uh it's they're they're <laughs> malicious.
0: Yeah, well and it does that whole thing where it it trains you how to play the game and then it does something really cruel <laughs> and pulls out the, the rug from under you. Um cool. Well, I think guys, uh, we're, we're targeted for wikification next, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, thanks guys for the, for the call. Uh, I know it's sort of taken us a while to get, get here, but, uh, this is a good yeah. thing. This has been the Game Theory Podcast episode 10. Follow us on Twitter at Game Theory PC, or you can send us an email at GameTheoryPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.